The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. As our human population keeps expanding, we need to address how we use animals in just about every aspect of our daily lives, from consumer product and medical research, to our food and clothing, to animals in our media and for live entertainment, all the way to including them as members of our family. Simply, it's time we shift the way we relate to our wild world. For wildlife conservation to succeed today and beyond, we must factor in our negative impacts on the animal world around us and recognize that through illegal wildlife trafficking, an estimated value of worth over $10 billion a year, we have drastically reduced wild populations across the globe. Our traditional conservation models and law enforcement efforts are no longer enough to stop the escalation of globalized illegal wildlife and trafficking markets. My guest today, Peter Knights, has long been leading the way toward a much-needed shift in our thinking to acknowledge the impacts and very real threat we humans are having on our wild world. The message is strong but simple. When the buying stops, the killing can too. Now, it is my distinct pleasure to introduce Peter Knights, Executive Director of WildAid, whose mission, it seems both personally and professionally, is to end the illegal wildlife trade. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here. I know you're a very busy man, and I appreciate you taking the time to join us on Our Wild World. So, let's start, Peter, with a little background. You were Senior Advisor for Global Survival Network and a Senior Investigator for the Environmental Investigation Investigation Agency, through which you created public awareness campaigns while also working toward providing comprehensive multi-species protections. What did this entail and how did it get you to where you are now? Ah, good question. So, um, originally I left university with an economics degree the London School of Economics, and I met the guys at the Environmental Investigation Agency, which was um, not a government agency, but a, a non-profit, which does undercover investigation of illegal wildlife trade. So my first experience was um, setting up fake companies and using hidden cameras to go in and see how people were abusing the wildlife laws and how they were getting around them and 
basically laundering uh, illegal wildlife products through legal trade. And so my first uh, experiences were on the ground in Africa and South America at the market end, uh, sorry, at the, at the supply end. And then I later traveled to the countries in Asia mainly where the products were being consumed. And again, was talking in an undercover basis with traders and sellers um, of people that uh, you know were in this business. And what became pretty clear to me from those two experiences is one that on the ground in places like Africa and Latin America, there were never going to be enough resources to really police these trades. Uh, and secondly, at the consumer end, people really didn't understand what was going on. In some cases, they didn't even know what the animals looked like they were getting the products from. So there was a huge disconnect on information and a huge disconnect on resources. And that these were the issues that needed to be dealt with if we were ever going to come to grips with the illegal wildlife trade. So through your specialization in on-site investigations, how did you come up between the resources and the organizations and uh, governments that you were working with to come up with this idea of advertising campaigns against the trade and consumption? Um, This is, and especially in Latin America and Asian markets, where culture is deeply entrenched and embedded of using wildlife. They don't have quite the same emotional or luxury connection we have here in our Western culture. Well, I think, first of all, you've got to remember our culture has not always been um, that benign to wildlife. And if you look at our industrial revolution, which is where places like China are going through now, we were absolutely appalling in our treatment of animals. And we wiped out species like the passenger pigeons and we had appalling treatment of animals at that time. So I personally don't believe there is any culture that is better or worse um, with regards to wildlife. In fact, many ways you could argue Asian culture overall has a more respectful um, thing. But what's happening is we're going through a sort of industrial revolution right now where, um, you know, people are uh, making new money. There hasn't been the education and outreach that maybe took us 200, 300 years in the West. Um, they're having to go through that in China in 10 years or 15 years. So I don't think there's any intrinsically cultural reason. I think it's the stage a culture is going through. And my work at Environmental Investigation Agency was largely about doing exposés of these illegal activities. And what you would find is it's easy to be a headline one week but then the next week, everyone just assumes that the thing's been solved and the media is no longer interested. And what we really needed was a much more persistent, ongoing campaign, like an advertising campaign, like a branding campaign, if you like, to stigmatize use of wildlife and to hopefully glamorize conservation as something that was aspirational. So we went about it in the same way as someone like Nike might go about selling you sneakers. We want to sell you conservation as a notion not for profit, but for support of, the, of our endangered species. And we want to stigmatize the use of wildlife trafficking as something which is essentially antisocial. It's everybody's wildlife that is being stolen, ultimately. And, um, you know, it's totally unsustainable and will end. The question is, can we end it while we still have some wildlife left? Excellent answer. And you brought up some really interesting points, the whole point of uh, embedded culture and that it really hasn't been that long that we in the West have gained this whole animal rights, animal welfare um, extremism, I'm going to call it, that no animal should ever die at the hands of humans. It doesn't leave a lot of room for our history and the use that we do have with animals today, farm animals, etc. So there is a dividing line between wildlife and captive or domestic. 
and you're dealing mostly with the wildlife and illegal markets. So let's to go back to like the 60s and 70s. And you said um, a minute ago that conservation sort of dropped off the media. In the 60s and the 70s, it was a, v- a very big thing in the media, a whole conservation ethic back to the 50s, all the Leopold stewardship. How do you think or why do you think it dropped off our media uh, radar? Well, I think it, it's come and gone at various times, and it, you know, and the, the media tends to be flavor of the month, and that's what it focuses on. And you know, I think um, there's been various wildlife crises of wildlife trade. There's the more sort of long-term problem of habitat loss and invasive species and climate change, which are all pervasive long-term threats. But what we've seen is that you know the conservation movement itself tried to focus more on on habitat. Um, protection. But in the meantime, we got this situation, particularly with the growth of um, Asian economies, where, you know, we find things like the rhino, for example, there is no shortage of rhino habitat in Africa. There is plenty of rhino habitat. The reason the rhinos are not there is they are being poached for their horns. And it's simply that there is no other reason other than the horn trade. And so, you know, we, we sort of refocused on habitat. And I think then um, at various times when these poaching crises have arisen, which always, in my mind, coincides with a rapid economic development in, in a consuming country, be it the Yemeni um, dagger handles for rhinos, which came up with the Saudi oil boom, that suddenly was a thing, or Taiwan, the growth of the Taiwanese economy also sponsored that, or more recently, the growth of the Chinese economy, which has pushed the expansion of shark fin trade, um, elephant ivory, um, and, and rhino horn, and a place like Vietnam emerging uh, as a rhino horn consumer. There was never a rhino horn consumer even 10 or 15 years ago. So a lot of people say these things are traditional, in inverted commas, but when you look at it closely, it was traditional for a very, very tiny number of very, very wealthy people to consume these products. And what's changed is it's become a much more of a mass market thing where people in the middle class can afford it. And there is now a middle class in places like China, which never used to exist 10 or 15 years ago. So from my point of view, this is all an economic phenomena. And therefore, the answer has to lie in economics as well. And the answer, the the conservation movement has predominantly focused on supply side solutions and protecting the supply. And what we needed to do is shift to actually deal with the demand because we have seen when we've been successful, it's been when we've looked at the demand and not just trying to protect the supply. In the same way as the drug war is not working because we're not impacting demand at all. We're trying to spend trillions of dollars trying to stop the supply, and it's been completely ineffectual. So you've really pointed out um, a really important point as far as I'm concerned and what this program focuses on is the connections between industrialization, culture, and these crises as of wildlife uh, expansion drops, the declines, increases, and a lot of human perception of how we look at the different uses. So for you, what was the turning point that got you from the investigation side into the marketing side of marketing and branding conservation as, as, a, as a media platform and as a conservation tool? Well, it was really um, working on multiple species over a number of years. So I started off working on the wild bird trade and, and was quite successful in helping to reduce the number of wild birds brought in the United States as pets through legislative efforts. But um, after that, I then worked on, on rhinos and rhino horn, elephant and elephant ivory, 
uh, bears and bear gallbladders. And it just became obvious that with the economic growth in Asia, we were constantly going to be chasing our tail with one crisis after another. And if we could stop one crisis, yet another one would follow shortly behind. And so we needed a much more systemic approach of actually sensitizing people to uh, where these products were coming from. Because when we were in places like Taiwan, I would have people genuinely say to me, the animal dies, someone picks up the horn, I'm just kind of recycling it. And when you say to them, well, actually, rhinos have to have 24-7 protection, people are literally being killed in protecting these animals and dying, the poachers are dying too, they were genuinely shocked. And so it was clear to me there was a massive information gap. And I think because with that time, you know, there wasn't really National Geographic, Discovery, all those channels were not really out there in Asia. So things that we assume we've seen a 100 times, and yes, we all know, um, in many cases, were not known in Asia, and there was a basic information lack. And so it became clear to me that we needed to not just deal with one species, but with the actual principle that the people killing the animals were only doing so because someone was paying them. They weren't doing it out of fun. There wasn't a byproduct. These things were being targeted, specifically those products, because people were prepared to pay high amounts of money to get them. And so, therefore, the responsibility, if you like, needed to go back to the consumer and not blame the, the poor guy in Africa who maybe doesn't have many economic choices and someone offers him $100 to shoot an elephant, he's going to shoot an elephant. But the people that are making the choice to buy that piece of ivory, we're not doing so out of economic necessity. They're doing it out of a, a lifestyle choice and a lifestyle choice not based on the information about where it's really coming from and the impacts. So it doesn't really do us that much good today to vilify or spew vitriol to any particular user of end user of illegal wildlife in other words we sort of have to reach out today maybe not necessarily shake hands and be friends but at least raise the awareness as you said without so much the sentiment or knee-jerk emotional response and try and find paths where we can connect with each other as you just said on an information basis well, I think, I think, you know, the knee-jerk reaction can be very counterproductive. And, you know, as, as you, I think, alluded to earlier, there are many things that go on in Western society with abuse of animals, slaughterhouses and things like that, conditions in factory farms and stuff like that, which are just as abhorrent in terms of cruelty as some of the stuff going on in the wildlife trade. So nobody can and, – and at the end of the day, a lot of this wildlife was first impacted by Europeans, um, uh, you know, in, in colonial days and things like that. So nobody is coming in here with a clean – background (laughs) and if you look at climate change you know here in the united states we're probably the worst uh, offender in terms of climate impact change so the blame game is not going to get you very far and instead i think it needs to be much more i'm trying to see people give people the benefit of the doubt assume that they're not doing this out of malice which has not been my experience Uh, assume there is a degree of, of ignorance Sometimes it's willful, but very often it's not. And start from that basis of trying to not point the finger of blame, but say, hey, but we can all be part of the solution. Let's not even worry about the blame. We can all be part of the solution. You can be part of the solution by not buying these products. And I think when you start with that, and the other key element we had is we were able to, right from the start, recruit leading Asian icons to be the spokespeople for these campaigns. So what I found is a lot of people in Asia who cared just as passionately as we do for wildlife, they hadn't had a voice previously, but if you gave them a voice, they were willing to stand up and be counted. And the first person we had for that was Jackie Chan and probably couldn't have picked a better person to lead that campaign. But uh, having it led by Asians, so it's not Westerners lecturing to Asians, but it's Asians talking to other Asians, I think is a very powerful um, part of that campaign as well. Well, that's been a a lot of issue in terms of our 
past model of conservation and how we Westerners are, I call it colonial conservation or um, neo-colonial conservation, that we are saying you are doing it wrong, pointing fingers when we don't really even, as you said uh, very clearly, and which I agree, our own uh, past is very checkered in our relationship with wildlife as it still is today. So that brings us directly into some of the campaigns that you and Wild Aid are, have created, the one with Jackie Chan. Where can our listeners see that? You can go to our website or on YouTube. If you put Wild Aid in, there's a whole list of different messages. Uh, you know, we've got now over 150 messages we've done with various icons. And it's not just um, Asian celebrities. It's also people like Harrison Ford, Leo DiCaprio, a whole range of Western stars as well who have lent their name. But again, we're doing it together. We're not doing it at Asia. We're doing it with Asians together. And that's an important key. And there's a great deal of concern and I find younger people in Asia, if anything, are probably more environmentally aware and more environmentally concerned than, than people who are in, in the West. Um, they're facing a lot more challenges directly on a daily basis. And what, uh, we've got a couple minutes here before we go to the break. Uh, just quickly, what are some of these challenges that they're facing that we're not? Well, I mean, air, air quality in China right oh, okay. now. Oh, okay absolutely terrible um you know and so for people in in beijing um you know it's not about climate change it's about air quality the the cause is the same but um they're, they're feeling the direct effects they've seen polluted rivers which we haven't seen for quite a long time now and so you know they're 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 going through a phase where a lot of our environmental dynamism as you said earlier they're in that phase right now because they're facing the challenges right now they don't have the environmental laws in place they have the industrial growth on a much much greater scale and a much greater pace than we ever had so the challenges are enormous but i think people want to be part of those solutions and um, my sincere hope and belief is that actually china is going to end up being an environmental a global environmental leader well i would certainly hope so um because i feel we're dropping the ball on that we being the united states and uh just dropping off and everything that we've talked about so far so uh I think this might be a really good time to head into a break. So once again, uh, my guest today is Peter Knights, Executive Director of Wild Aid. You can find Wild Aid at wildaid.org. You can see some of the campaign ads. You can follow them on Twitter. You can follow them on Facebook. And you can learn where your donations and contributions go toward ending and participating in this campaign to raise awareness about stopping the illegal wildlife trade. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now. 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. 
She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss in Our Wild World, and we're with Peter Knights, Executive Director of Wild Aid. And we've been talking about wildlife trafficking, how to end it, how it began, the various different perspectives, and the campaigns, and how it relates to culture and industrialization, and how various cultures have always had a relationship with wildlife and not always very good. So, Peter, with the campaigns that people can find at wildaid.org, uh, you've got several going on. Uh, why celebrity? Does What is the bright, shiny brass ring about celebrity that makes it work? Well, we try – celebrity is a word that anybody described as celebrity hates to hear. Um, most people are like actors or uh, sports people, uh, athletes and things like that. So we try and pick people who are – famous for something as opposed to being famous, which we have quite a few of here in the United States. But um, really, it's, it's the recognizability of people. It makes it more interesting. It makes it more attractive to the media. Um, very often, you are kind of buying into a brand. So when someone sees Jackie Chan, they kind of know who Jackie Chan is. You don't actually explain who Jackie Chan is. You know he's been around for a long time. You know he's got a great reputation in many areas. And, and so... People listen more. It's a simple fact um, than if somebody you've never seen before shows up on the TV. It, it gets more attention. And we've been able and unlucky enough to attract some of the most prominent icons, I would call them, rather than celebrities, um, in Asia. People like Yao Ming, uh, the basketball player who carried the flag for China in the Beijing Olympics. Uh, you know, Jackie Chan, we've just done a thing with a, a gentleman called Jiang Wen, who is um, the Quentin Tarantino of China. So we try and pick people that have um, a certain positive reputation um, and that people can, you know, are interested and relate to. And then it's not, a, it's not a, a rocket science process. When you look at a lot of brand endorsements, they will use celebrity endorsers or billboards to, to push their products. And that's essentially what we're doing. Our product is conservation and um, making it as aspirational as possible. So that was really the, the reason. And also I think... You know, we found that you can tell a more unpalatable story 
when it's sugar-coated through uh, somebody like Jackie Chan's voice. So we wanted to show people, and Jackie Chan was adamant about this, we needed to show people the horrible things happening to animals. If we just tried to do that in an ad, it probably wouldn't got shown. But when we showed it with Jackie presenting it and telling you how he felt about it, that was able to get on the media. So because of that, we're able to get more media space. We're able to get more pickup on television, and we try and make it, not just preaching to people, but we try and make it entertaining and interesting because, you know, the thing about environmental work is very often it's bad news and people only want to take a certain amount of bad news. And to be able to keep an issue alive until it's actually really solved, you need to take it, tell it in an imaginative way, you need to tell it in a lot of different ways so that people will be engaged and not turn off um, because it's just negative. So I think that's a lot of the celebrity uh, and the icon uh, we have business leaders and people like that who wouldn't really call themselves celebrities, but they're well-known people that have a certain degree of standing within a society. That is an, an incredible answer, and you and you pointed out some very important differences: icon versus celebrity. Uh, oftentimes, celebrity is not exactly the role model we would like to um, appropriate or uh, right. follow. Where icon has a whole different meaning, and and it provides a positive reinforcement and as you said a lot of environmental news is bad news these days and we do get like a donor fatigue or a conservation fatigue and we lose the ability to be engaged again because we're just constantly hit with one thing after another so once again i encourage our listeners to visit wildaid.org and check out some of these ads the one peter was talking about with jackie chan for rhino is fabulous so um our let's talk about some of the donations and where the money goes um from reading through some of the work on your website a lot of this uh celebrity and icons and and public figures they donate their time and their willingness to be a part of this correct not, not a lot, all of them. We've never paid anyone anything to do any of our messages. It's all volunteer time. And then beyond that, a lot of the people working on the filming, and another key component for us is to make the filming really high quality so that it actually does look like a, a Nike ad and not something shot in someone's basement. Um, a lot of that time and expertise is donated by advertising agencies and production companies. And then the big thing that's donated that enables this campaign to be successful is the actual media space itself. So Last year, we had an, an audited, independently audited donations of media in China of 160 million U.S. dollars. Wow. That means this is a campaign on the sort of scale that a Coca-Cola would do as opposed to being a obscure non-profit thing. And so Chinese media has been incredibly supportive, both government media, CCTV, uh, and private media. And so, again... All we're doing there is we're tapping into something which is already there, which was a concern among people in Asia, to get involved and to help this. And we've given them a mechanism in which to help through the media, and they've been incredibly supportive. And so that's why, you know, I really think we're just scratching something which is really close to the surface. And people don't need a huge amount of persuading. They kind of know instinctively that, you know, that the sheer scale of economic growth, the, the nature of deforestation, things like that, means our wildlife is in trouble. And obviously, when people are buying these products, they're directly driving the extinction. And so, um, you know, that's how we've been able to, to make an impact is by the support that we've had from Asian companies, Asian individuals and Asian icons. Well, this is wonderful to hear because a lot of the work that I do and people that I talk to here in this culture, the West, I'm speaking specifically, you know, sea to shining sea here on the continental U.S., 
they have a tendency to vilify, as I'd said earlier, Asian cultures. And it's a, it's a rather closed culture uh, politically, government-wise. So mm-hmm. being able to make this relationship, build this bridge between uh, Wild Aid and Chinese governments and governments across Africa mm-hmm. is, is a huge, huge deal. Pardon my simplified yeah. words, but it is an astonishing accomplishment and very much to be proud of. So once again, I suggest our listeners uh, visit wildaid.org, understand where your contributions go, and understand the amazing, incredible accomplishments that these advertise- advertisements and have, have generated. So um, let's move on a little bit. Um, do you... We, you you understand that the campaigns are having an effect, so you, you can see that they're having an effect in China. Um, so how do you direct an ad toward, let's say, a Chinese audience versus an ad to an African audience? Because the issues are slightly different. On one side, you've yeah. you've got the home of the wildlife, and the other side, you've got you've got the supply and the demand. So how do you shift these your campaigns to these various audiences? Well, first thing we should we should maybe take this up later. But the shift we've seen in China in the last two years is a fifty to seventy percent reduction in consumption of shark fin. So there's been and that's been measured by surveys, government statistics. Uh, we've done undercover inv- interviews with traders and independent media. So we have seen a real a real impact. Um, the messaging for Africa will be different. Um, there, it's more about political will and public support of efforts to protect the animals at the supply end. But a lot of the sort of imagery can be very similar. And one of the things you notice going around the world, as I do, I um, mean, you know, I've worked in over 45 countries, uh, you realize that the world is becoming ever flatter. Um, and the media in particular is becoming ever more sort of homogenized. So things that work in the West increasingly work in Asia in terms of imagery. Um, so one of the reasons we were able to get such good play in China was they really liked our style, um, which is very much sort of Madison Avenue advertising with uh, computer-generated graphics and things like that and very high quality. So that there was a demand there in the media and people people like it. It works. Um, so, however, the messaging in Africa is really going to be aimed more about um, trying to support the government efforts, not tolerate corruption, which is a very big part of the wildlife trade, which undermines governments all over the world, um, and reporting poaching and not seeing it as just uh, an animal being killed, but also seeing the security and economic impacts of illegal wildlife trade. When you have groups like, uh, 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 you know, the Janjaweed and uh, Lord's Resistance Army and Al-Shabaab, uh, who are involved in things like um, ivory trade and charcoal trade and wildlife trafficking, and using it as a source of money in the same way as blood diamonds are. That's undermining governments in Africa. It's undermining security for people. And you see the poaching undermining the tourism industry, which is a major revenue earner for many African countries. So people have to understand this. It's more, I mean, not that it's not very important to care about the animals, but there are also human costs of this trade. And um, that needs to be factored. And it really is stealing, in some cases, the future of, of the, the countries and one of their economic uh, mainstays. Well, it's, it, you make a very important point, and one that I make constantly throughout um, this program, is that it's not just about wildlife and loving animals. It's so much more that it really is um, either funding terrorism, uh, undermining habitat, uh, umbrella species, and in the end, uh, destroying our very ability to survive as a species on this planet. 
because we're a part of the web. So thank you for saying that so eloquently and specifically. I appreciate that. So um, how do you approach some of the alternatives? So you're asking people in China to mm -hmm. stop using wildlife, to stop using ivory, to stop using uh, rhino, which are very different. You don't have to have a dead rhino to get rhino horn. It, it's difficult to keep a, an elephant alive and maintain an ivory trade. So what are the alternatives that are, 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 are you involved in, in this at all or previously to if you want somebody to stop something, usually you have to provide an alternative. How do you go about that? Well, the reality is wildlife trade is not a necessity for anyone. These are, these are goods of choice. And, you know, unlike drugs, they're not addictive. These things are actually, uh, you know, symbols of wealth and aspiration rather than despair and, and de depression that drugs might be, for example. So, um, you know, there are, in some cases, there are ready alternatives which make sense. So, for example, with rhino horn, there are other traditional medicines which have similar effects to rhino horn, buffalo horn is actually pretty similar. Um, and uh, in the case of um, things like ivory, there are other things that can be carved. You can carve stone, you can carve wood, you can even carve mammoth ivory. And in fact, you can get ivory without killing an elephant because you can get it from an elephant that died of natural causes. The problem is people are not prepared to wait. And all these things, it is a question of demand. Theoretically, you could have sustainable trade in anything if you have the right levels and the right management and the right controls. The reality is these things do not get controlled, um, that people circumvent those controls and that people are too greedy. They're not going to wait for that elephant to die and shed its ivory naturally. They're going to kill it. And even the rhino that's been dehorned, they will kill the rhino that's been dehorned to get that last bit of horn out of it. And also, so they don't chase that rhino again. The poachers don't pursue a rhino that's got a, a smaller horn. So, um, you know, it's all about the demand being too much and about our ability to control not being sufficiently good, especially when you deal with international borders and you're talking about shipping things around the world. It's so easy to launder things, to disguise them, to get around the rules. So, um, you know, in many cases, the, 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 the alternatives kind of find themselves. So, you know, with shark fin soup, people serve other kinds of soup. Um, you know, we've done something recently with the Ritz-Carlton chain, and they found when they stopped serving shark fin soup, their profitability did not change in any way, shape, or form. And people just ordered another expensive dish on the menu. Um, people in China are used drinking more wine now. So as an alternative to uh, serving shark fin, which is really all about showing off that you're spending a lot of money. You can order a bottle of French wine with a label and make sure people know you spent money that way. So there are very many alternatives. Um, I don't see our, our necessarily our role as filling those alternatives. The free market will find something else. But none of these things that I've ever worked with have been essential. Um, and so, you know, the alternatives are out there. So, in other words, some of the best and brightest that the West is shedding around the world this need for instant access, instant gratification, is sort of contributing to the downfall as other developing worlds and economies emerge to a new affluent middle class. So it would do us well, I think I hear you saying, to also change our own patterns right here at home. So in, in terms of what you're saying, that sort of brings us to a bit of a sticky wicket. Where does CITES fit into all this? There is a lot of confusion between legal ivory in Hong Kong and yeah. illegal ivory, poached ivory, the new U.S. Fish and Wildlife laws and 
the U.S. markets of selling and importing or bringing in ivory to Clinton's global initiative and Obama's executive order. Isn't it getting a bit convoluted for the average person to sort of follow and understand this? How do you navigate through all of this? Yeah, I mean, CITES uh, is a UN treaty, 192 countries, and it has actually been pretty useful in protecting species. It's the only sort of international mechanism. And however, it's had some severe flaws. And the biggest flaw is that a lot of countries don't actually enforce it properly. But it has other flaws, such as when a species is protected, um, they haven't really known what to do with stockpiles. So people have had stockpiles and normally CITES only deals with the international trade. It doesn't deal with the domestic trade. So once you're inside a country, you're not really covered by CITES. So if you can smuggle it through, you're kind of home, home dry. And the stockpile issue has been very difficult because these you know, animals have been protected, but then there's these stockpiles out there which seem to never go any slower or, or get any less because they're basically a perfect laundering mechanism to bring through um, illegal trade. So... This has been a problem. We're, we're actually in favor of sales bans as opposed to import bans because we think sales bans are much easier to enforce. If somebody is selling it, you, a policeman can go out. You shouldn't do that. You're stopped. Whereas now a policeman has to go and say, well, where did you obtain that? And do you have a permit for it? And actually, in most cases, it's up to the police to prove that this was obtained prior to when the ban came in, which means they've got a DNA test and various other things. So it makes it very, very difficult to enforce. It sends a complete mixed message to the public because it's like you can't buy it, but actually you can. And so we think that's one of the major problems right now is uh, the import bans should be backed up by sales bans. You can give people a period of time to sell off their stock. In the case of shark fin in California, we gave them a year and then the law came in and bang, that's it. You can't sell it anymore. And that's much easier to enforce, much clearer message to the public. It's sort of like um, a parallel issue gun control. It's it's sort of out of control and chaotic, but if you made the bullets $15,000 each, you couldn't supply the arms. So I went on a tangent there, but uh, thank you. Um, So CITES is, is functional. Do you think they're okaying the sales uh, over the last, sorry? Yeah, they did. I mean, the mistake that CITES made was in 2008, they allowed a one-off sale, supposedly, to China, and that was supposed to satisfy demand. But in fact, what it did is stimulate demand. So since 2008, 2009, the poaching has gone up. And what it does is it just means companies can be there, they can advertise ivory, and very often they can sell the illegal ivory sort of under the table when customers come in. Um, and that, that's enabled, as we've seen, the history of the ivory trade is enabling through legal trade to launder illegal poached ivory. So I think your, your point there on banning sales has a lot of merit because it's one way to um, enforce and control and look at the other side of the equation. So we're going to take a break here. Um, stick with us. My guest is Peter Knights, Executive Director of Wild Aid. You can find uh, on the internet wildaid.org, see some of the campaigns that they're talking about, and see the news and follow their blog, and see what is happening around the world in our wild world. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. 
wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, and you're listening to Our Wild World with my guest, Peter Knights of Wild Aid. So previously through this episode, we have covered a lot of territory about why there is a growing illegal market uh, illegal, illegal market in wildlife and trafficking. And I think Peter's given us some great responses and ways to tackle this uh, in alternatives and how to deal with it while highlighting what we can do and not so much highlighting the bad news. But Wild Aid and Peter is involved, uh, are involved in a lot wider perspective in terms of what's going on around our world. Peter, tell us some of the other initiatives uh, that Wild Aid is involved in and other species under your quote-unquote umbrella. Yeah, we're focusing on four main species right now. The sharks, which I've mentioned, and shark fin soup, which is a campaign which has been very successful, led by Yao Ming, and really is um, the, the one documented case where we've been able to show a major reduction in consumption of shark fin as a result of public awareness campaigns. And then um, we're dealing with the ivory trade right now with uh, roughly... 30,000 elephants a year being poached for their ivory, mainly going to China, but also United States and Thailand and other markets. So the next thing we're doing on that project is Catherine Bigelow, the director of the Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty, has done this amazing three-minute animated short um, linking the ivory trade to terrorism in Africa. Um, and actually, it's all shot in reverse. It's, a, it's an animated piece by the team that did The Lion King, really beautifully done, that takes the ivory from uh, the streets of China back to 
Africa and the Westgate Mall incident. Um, so a very powerful piece, which we hope will increase the debate about uh, blood ivory, as we call it. And so that's going on. We've got um, the rhino horn trade. We're focusing in Vietnam, which is a major consumer. We've got business leaders that we're recruiting to lead the charge there and discourage people to consume rhino horn. Uh, we're also talking with doctors there because in, in Vietnam, people are claiming that rhino horn is a cure for cancer. Um, and obviously, it's keratin, it's fingernails. So we think this is a particularly cruel thing that they're doing there, trying to exploit people who are really desperate to help family members. Uh, and ironically, most of the time, they're giving them buffo, buffalo horn, not rhino horn. So a really nasty situation there in Vietnam. And then um, we're also working on manta rays. They're gill rakers, um, which is their filters they filter feed, um, are being used for a soup in China, in southern China. This is a new thing. It's not in traditional medicine. Um, and unfortunately, manta rays only produce maybe they have 13 young in their entire life, so they reproduce very, very slowly and really can't deal with any kind of exploitation. And this trade is, is definitely a threat to them. So this uh, is a, an illegal, illegal trade, not a legal trade. Well, the CITES, we managed to get uh, the governments, various governments around the world, managed to get the manta rays listed on CITES. So now it's illegal, and Indonesia has actually banned it. Previously, it was completely unregulated. So sometimes we're playing catch-up on these things, and we hope uh, we've just got someone in China right now, and it looks like already the availability of manta ray gill rakers has gone down. So that could be some encouraging news for, for the manta rays. Excellent. Uh, so this brings up something to mind. Um, here in the U.S., we're dealing with U.S. Fish and Wildlife with, and the Endangered Species Protection Act and Wildlife Acts and a lot of political pressure to reduce the protections of these acts that we have in place. How do you think that's going to uh, affect or turn out? Do you think we have enough public pressure and awareness through campaigns that Wild Aid does and other organizations do? to bring enough awareness in time to, A, affect this political, I'm going to call it shenanigans, to try and reduce these protections, and B, the second part, does wildlife, these species, do they have the time? I think a lot of the shenanigans we've got through uh, in terms of weakening or gutting the Endangered Species Act, I think there's a much more insidious thing going on, which is basically the defunding of the enforcement. So, you know, um, the, the, the cutbacks in government are meaning that there's no, in, not enough inspectors, there's not enough agents working on this. And it's a much more insidious way of undermining the law rather than changing the law. You just basically defund its implementation. And I think that's a real, real problem. And I think my experience, uh, I'm, I'm speaking as an American despite my accent, is that, uh, you know, the average American really does care about endangered species and does want to see them protected. Um, and it's one of those things which uh, these budget cuts is just kind of sneaking away at slowly. And I think that's what we've got to be wary of rather than the actual law being changed. So I'm glad you pointed that, that out because it is an important distinction. So what is it we as citizens can do? There's a very important election coming up in sort of a lame duck kind of <laughs> area, season time. People are are busy with their own dramas and lives. So what is it something we can do? What's an action we can take to stop the, this insidious undermining, as you call it, which I agree, of defunding these important areas of well, think, preserving you know, our world? Yeah, no, I think it's just your, your representatives. Uh, you know, I mean, I think as taxpayers, we want value for money. 
but we don't want to cut things which are necessary, like education and various other things. And it seems to be this knife which just indiscriminately slashes things is not really what we want. Yes, wasteful things should not be done, and yes, the government should be accountable on how it spends money, but there are certain basic services like policing and things like that that we need and, and want and probably arguably need more and more. Um, so I think we, you know, we have to change the, the debate somewhat away from just simply cutting government spending to cutting areas that maybe have flab but not cutting back on the essential services and not undermining the laws by the back door because that really is not doing it through the democratic process. Um, and uh, I think that's that that can be there. I mean, uh, uh, mainly what individuals can do, from my point of view, is they can talk to other people about the situation. If they know people, you may not consume any of these wildlife products yourself, but you may know the people that can. And what we find is that very often it's not necessarily the advertising that directly influences people. It's people around that person. So the grandchildren tell the shark fin trader to stop eating shark fin soup, and he did. Um, you know, it could be the neighbors, it could be other people. So, you know, everybody has the chance to interact and, and, and uh, explain what's going on to people. And that's something we really encourage. And just, you know, supporting the environment in general with your political candidates. So I don't see this as a political issue at all. Um, we've had great support in our in initiatives from both parties um, in different ways. So, you know, it's more about what you do than any sort of ideology that's, that's blocking this. So moving conservation and a model of conservation forward, it's really shifted. As you had said back in the beginning of the program, it was about habitat protection and umbrella species and raising awareness and numbers and numbers game of viable populations. But now it's shifted more to enforcement that some of these new models, and I'm not talking necessarily about militarizing anti-poaching, although that may be necessary in some places, but enforcement. And as you just said, we can have a say by supporting the candidates that support our environment that don't undermine uh, the budgets that provide for the enforcement, the policing, the rangers, where mm -hmm. your donations can help on the ground in protecting species. So on the ground in Africa, have you seen a shift in how conservation models are are being engaged? I mean, I think there's there's been more interest in enforcement recently, which is good, and there's been more um, emphasis on community involvement, which is very positive. We have to have the communities involved. But I think, you know, I, again, I look to the war on drugs, and I say you are not going to enforce your way out of this problem because if trillions of dollars doesn't make a dent in the drugs trafficking because you haven't affected the demand, we're never going to get trillions of dollars for wildlife. So I think, you know, a fraction of that needs to be spent on reducing the demand. And when we've seen successes, because we've been in this situation before for elephants. In 1989, there was more elephants being poached. And when they stopped the illegal wildlife trade and the markets closed down in Europe and, and the United States and even parts of Asia, we saw elephants recover. In 1993, when Taiwan stopped the sales of rhino horn and China stopped the, the, the sales of rhino horn, for 15 years, rhinos were doing well. There was hardly any poaching going on. And the things that have changed is new economies like Vietnam have come up. So the changes have not been a, a cutback in enforcement. The changes have been an increase in the demand. So I don't think you can look to increased enforcement to solve that problem. 
We need enforcement. It's the, it's the finger in the dam. We need it. But we need to stop the water building up behind the dam. And that's the demand. And places like Taiwan now are no longer problems for rhino horn. There has been a cultural change. And it, it happened through public awareness and education. And we can do that in places like China. But we have to put some resources into doing that and not just put them all into the enforcement baggers, as we have done in drugs. So we have to spread our eggs out through many baskets, not put them yep. all into one basket. And the adage that you cannot change a culture overnight is not doesn't really hold water because we're changing all the time. Go to China. Go to China as I do every three or four weeks. And every time I go, I see change. And so I would, I would suggest that nowhere in the history of this planet has anywhere changed so fast and on such a scale as is happening in China right now. So it's not a question of changing China. China is changing. It's a question of making this part of that change that people are going through. Uh, and hopefully something that's very positive for everybody involved, positive for the reputation of China. As I said, I believe that in five or ten years, China is seen as an environmental leader in climate change and also in wildlife conservation. We're already seeing people, uh, philanthropists from China, donating to Africa. And I think... Um, China can be an incredible force for good. The will is there. The education needs to catch up a little bit, and, and it could be a very positive uh, force for change. I wish you could see my face right now because I have the broadest grin on, on – broadest grin. I mean, that, that is such a positive message after hearing so much discouraging news that change is for the good. It is happening, and it is happening right in front of us, and we can be a part of it. So um, we've got a few minutes left here. I'd like to talk about some upcoming news. You alluded to it earlier, um, Blood Ivory and uh, an upcoming event that you have, Last Days by Catherine Bigelow, tackling uh, Blood Ivory. Tell us a little bit about what that is. Well, this is the three-minute short. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. So that's coming up. I mean, amongst other things I'm doing is I'm also working with the cast of The Walking Dead. Uh, which actually is uh, one of the most popular TV shows on the planet and one of the, I think, the most popular American TV show in China, bizarrely. It's funny you should mention that because I recently just got hooked on that show and sort of did an entire Walking Dead marathon over a weekend. So uh, tell us a little more. What can we look forward to? Well, the, The Walking Dead is a story of a group of people struggling to survive in a post-apocalyptic zombie infested world and they're constantly on the run they're constantly in danger they're constantly under threat and that's pretty much the situation for rhinos and elephants so we thought there was a strong parallel there there's actually cast members that have connections back to africa and so we're trying to do something together with that cast to to keep the awareness going and you know to say the situation they face in the series is pretty much the situation the wildlife faces it's desperate it's sad it's tragic um, but it is avoidable. And, uh, you know, by people spreading the word not to buy these products by going ivory free, as our campaign is called, be, you know, be ivory free, then uh, we can save the elephants and um, protect them for future generations. I love it. I can't wait to uh, learn more about that and see what you all come up with. Because so far, between the ad campaigns that you've done, which our listeners can find at wildaid.org, look them up. They're fabulous uh, advertisements. They're between one and three minutes. This upcoming one, uh, Last Days, Tackling Blood Ivory, that uh, Peter uh, described to us, the animation. So when will that be uh, hitting, hitting the public? 
Uh, we're thinking in mid-November to early December, we're trying to release it simultaneously in China and Vietnam and Thailand as well as the United States. And uh, we haven't quite finalized it yet, but we're hoping it'll go out on social media as well as TV. And, uh, you know, Catherine is obviously an amazing filmmaker, and this is an incredible piece she's put together. We hope it's going to get a lot of attention. Well, please keep me posted because I will do my best to get my audience and our listeners uh, out there and get it out there and uh, spread the news. So we have about three minutes left. Uh, what would be the most important thing that we haven't covered, all of it's been important, that you would like our listeners to take away today? Well, I think uh, you know the situation is desperate but not hopeless. Um, that we need a slight change of tactic because what we've been doing hasn't worked and that's where I think the demand side comes in. Um, there's a lot of people out there in Asia who want to do the right thing, who want to be part of conservation, um, but it takes time to access them. Uh, when we talked earlier, I don't think it's, it's a generational thing. It's something in Taiwan we saw things flip in literally two years. It went from being the number one consumer rhino horn to not even on the radar screen. And that change went across other species as well. So, you know, we can, we can make this difference. We still got to work. And for our position here as Americans, our biggest weakness and our biggest failing is our consumption of energy. Um, you know, we're the highest per capita carbon users. And if we want to do our bit, we should look at cutting back on our carbon footprint wherever we can. Um, and so, you know, it, it's not necessarily about doing uh, hugely virtuous and, and monk-like things. Every little bit helps. So if you can cut down your air conditioning a bit, if you can use your car slightly less, all those things can contribute to not just helping the wildlife but helping human beings as well. So if that's something that I would urge people to do that doesn't depend on you being a consumer of wildlife products, we all impact it through our actions and our daily purchasing. That's how we can make a change. And thank you for saying that. It's something I constantly, um, some people may call it badger, but talk about on this program that every little thing we do does make an impact from bringing your own reusable bag, uh, reducing our plastic, single-use plastic. Every little thing we can do in changing our own lifestyle is not necessarily about making a sacrifice, but it impacts the larger world. So thank you for supporting me with your very uh, uh, acknowledged background and uh, for taking the time to spend this hour with me on our wild world. So once again, I want to thank Peter Knights, our guest, uh, Executive Director of Wild Aid. Find wildaid.org online. Check out their advertising. Stay in touch. Be involved. And take away the good news that there is hope. The situation is a bit desperate, but not all is lost. It's still there. We still have it. While it's still there and we have it, we can do something. So thank you, Peter, so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be here with us today. Thanks very much. Enjoyed it. Thank you, and it's been a pleasure. And uh, once again, this is Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. And uh, step outside and do what you can do to help change things around. Thank you, and see you next week. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now.